everybody, this is episode number two of the Rational Right Brain mini-series. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are three Rational Right Brain episodes uh, that were in a pre-Ikigai phase, so I was you know, just trying to find my way, kind of drifting all over the place, and fortunately had three incredible guests. Uh, unfortunately, I uh, wasn't very clear on uh, where I was going and the line of questioning that I was driving toward before finding Ikigai. Um, so the second episode is with Christina Behrens. Uh, Christina is the CEO uh, and co-founder of Mana Financial Life Design. Christina and I go way back uh, working together at an asset management firm for probably close to a decade, I believe. Uh, most recently, Christina has launched Mana Financial Life Design with uh, a co-founder, Stephanie Bucko, who's also a friend. I believe they're college friends. And in this episode, uh, Christina talks about her journey. She talks about what mana means, uh, how it means Hawaiian, or excuse me, power in Hawaiian, and uh, the tie that that has to her personally. Uh, she fled the Philippines uh, at a young age because of a, a coup and Hawaii was the first place that she landed and so it has a very deep and personal meaning for her. Uh, she talks about George Kinder and his influence on her journey um, and the concept of financial life design. Uh, and then last she uh, she talks a little bit about how uh, her and Stephanie are millennial women uh, in a industry that's dominated by boomer men. Um, so again, Christina is incredible. Uh, please just bear with me as I kind of stumble along the way and Christina bails me out. Uh, this is episode number two of the Rational Right Brain of three. And uh, please enjoy this conversation with Christina. What is MANA Financial Life Design? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. Um, so MANA Financial Life Design is... Um, my partner and I's interpretation of financial planning done right. And so um, what we are doing in our financial life design process is really bridging people's money with their biggest hopes and biggest dreams for their life. We want to be our clients, cheerleaders and accountability partners for living a life that they're happy to live today, not just for some time in the future. Okay, great. Um, so let's start first with mana. What, um, what does mana mean and what's kind of the, the inspiration behind choosing mana as, uh, the brand? Yeah. So mana is an ancient Hawaiian word and it's an ancient Hawaiian word for power that's unrelated to wealth. And that, when I heard that name and I heard that definition, my whole body lit up with excitement that I finally found a name. It took about two years to find a name that I was very excited uh, to represent. And so um, when I found that and I, and I really aligned that with our mission, that was exactly what I wanted the brand to say. Okay. So let's dig a little deeper. So um, it's a Hawaiian word. It's Polynesian in background. Is there some connection there that you have to... Uh, Hawaii or Polynesian culture? 
Yeah, there is. Um, so I, um, I am, I was born in Makati, Manila in the Philippines, and um, I had to leave the Philippines pretty abruptly um, in uh, uh, 1989 when there was a coup to overtake the Filipino government. Um, I don't have a lot of vivid details about my childhood because um, a lot of it happened, uh, you know, very young. Um, but I just remember Hawaii being the first place in America that um, I arrived. And there was a tremendous sense of comfort in that. So Hawaii has been very important in my life ever since. Um, you, you know, because uh, we spent some time together there, but uh, in my past life, I spent 10 years as a, uh, a mutual fund wholesaler. Um, and I covered both Los Angeles and the lovely state of Hawaii. Um, and so I was able to go there, you know, four to five times a year, spend time with its beautiful people. I'm a surfer, so I got to ride the waves. Um, I got to see the North Shore pump in, you know, in December every year. Um, and so Hawaii is just a very, very special place in my heart. Did you ever ride the North Shore waves? I did it once. <laughs> and you survived um, to talk about and it. And got completely raked uh, <laughs> in the reef. So it's going to, you know, probably not another time uh, for, for the North Shore, but but I do like the South Shore where the North Shore is pumping. Nice. So. <laughs> Check the box. Um, okay. So, so the uh, I want to dig in a little bit more just into uh, the influence that Mana has had, or, or maybe just Hawaii Mana, um, Aloha. So, how do you how do you capture that? Uh, passion and that interest and that um, the spirit of aloha and, and mana in your uh, dealings and working with with clients and the basically the intersection with with money yeah I and mean, I think that's a good question it's something I think about on a daily basis because I do believe you continually need to work at that um, the spirit of aloha is ever-evolving, um, especially as it pertains to relationships with human beings. Um, but I'd say quite simply, it's really kind of based on my, um, my study of life planning. And life planning, um, as it stands today, was founded by some few key pioneers, and George Kinder was one of them. Uh, George Kinder and his book, Seven Stages of Money Maturity, very much um, impacted my decision to leave asset management and go into uh, financial life planning because I was able to create a, an environment where I could help bridge my clients' money to all of their biggest dreams and goals. And that's what life planning is really all about. Um, it's finding, you know, intention and purpose in people's money. So how do you, how do you do that? How do you help, how, how do you help um, your clients uncover intention behind money? I'd say the first step um, is to do what's very unnatural to all of us. And it's to listen attentively and be consistently curious about what people mean after they say something and to understand someone deeply. So the way that we do it at MANA is that we spend a considerable amount of time understanding people's relationship to their money. 
and what um, these, some of these decisions that they've made in their life has to do and how they relate to uh, it, their money. Okay. Um, so if you look, so you've been in the industry for a while, you've had the opportunity to see a lot of different financial advisors at, in a lot of different places. So what, when, so the phrase financial life design um, is different. It's, mm -hmm. it's unique. So help me understand first, what does financial life design mean? And I, you kind of just referenced that, but what does it mean? And, and how does that phrase open up deeper, more, more meaningful conversations with prospects and clients? Sure. Uh, financial life design was really born um, through first, you know, the the connection to financial life planning and really kind of my predecessor predecessors, um, a, a generation or two removed from my generation. They really laid the groundwork for what financial life planning is. And uh, the you know, the <laughs> the fact is, after I kind of started testing out this idea of financial life planning, a lot of my peers and my future clients, um, I, I tested this out um, in terms of language and um, it basically came back, they came back to me saying they hated the word planning. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of creative people, um, you know, my, my fiance included, who's a documentarian and a filmmaker, um, hates the idea of planning and said, if, if I am one of your ideal clients, I wouldn't want to talk to you because I am so terrified of the word planning. And so we decided to explore other options. And in using the word design, to me, that makes, that makes the process more collaborative. And it really takes into account both the planner and the client in designing a life that everyone you know is everyone knows that 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 the client is happy to live yeah that's great um so design so so is planning is more um one directional versus design is more um collaboration is that the the, the gist of what you uncovered Okay. Yes, I think that's a good good summation. Um, so so empathy. So you you know I looked at a lot of your a lot of your materials. Looked at your website. Um, can you talk about empathy and design and maybe 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 just the process that you take a, a prospect through and and helping them have a better understanding of their purpose and their meaning and before they even get into their relationship with money, can you talk through how you um, engage the design principles. Sure. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's all about kind of on our website, we say compassionate finance, right? So it's about removing the judgment of money, whether you have it or not. Right. I think our financial service industry has, you know, inadvertently, um, or purposefully not sure yet ha has, um, uh, created essentially kind of a line in the sand of, you know, if you have X amount of assets to invest, then you can be a client. Um, and that really, that language pained me and my partner. Um, as we even heard a lot of, a lot of folks with, you know, a million dollars or $2 million in investable assets 
feeling that they weren't enough. And so we believe in everyone being enough. Um, and we always, we talk about kind of that whole line of financial planning that you can have anything you want in life. You just can't have everything. And so the way that we begin our process compassionately is by understanding um, our clients deeply and finding out what their relationship to money is today. Has it evolved over time? Have they had any bad experiences with money? And understanding some of the answers to these questions can help us frame the way that we talk about specific issues. Um, trying to think here. And, and I mean, essentially we, we make it a point to ask a combination of both behavioral, emotional questions in every single meaning. And we combine that with the more factual uh, answers or questions and answers that we need to, to actually create the financial plan. So, um, so that's incredibly interesting. I think I can see the value in helping someone come to that understanding once they get across the finish line. I can also see the potential challenge where um, getting into emotions and meaning, you know, the deep, deep meaning and relationship that people have with money, um, where most advisors stop is uh, where you continue to push deeper. So how do you, how do you, when you, how do you create a relationship with a person, whether they're a prospect or a client, but how do you create a relationship that enables the trust um, and authenticity for them to share this deep um, relationship that they have with money? Is it a, is it a one meeting process? Is it a multiple meeting process? Is there work that you do in advance? Like how do you earn the right to get to that level of depth with another person? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, I, I try to understand that um, more than I, it's, to me, it's, it's a feeling, um, but I, I don't know if you read on Sunday, there was a New York Times article uh, written with an interview of a of a, an NPR host um, that has spent the majority of her life, you know, interviewing people, um, and that's really her job is to kind of get gain that trust right away. And she said something that really resonated with me, and it's and it's to be curious. Mm -hmm. And I am just a I'm a very curious person. I think that is what makes me uh, what made me good at sales for a decade. Um, and it's what makes me passionate about what I do today. I'm just really interested in understanding why people think what they think and the experiences that led them there. And I do believe, I think a lot of that fear that you, you mentioned um, comes from a place of not knowing where to take the client next. Though I would argue that that's not what the client wants you there for they want someone to listen to them and they want someone to hold space for them. They don't necessarily need a solution right away, nor is a solution likely possible for many years.
but paying attention to it and being mindful of some of these decisions and knowing why they are made in the way that they're made, I believe is is very powerful. Yeah, so the, that's a that's clearly a, a skill. Um, and so you mentioned the Kinder Institute, and I know you've spent a, a lot of time going through that process and engaging with the Kinder Institute. Can you talk about, um, can you shine a little bit more light on the Kinder Institute uh, for those who don't, aren't aware of the Kinder Institute and just what impact it's the Institute has had on you and in, um, in launching MANA? Sure. Um, I was, uh, I was re- recently interviewed by uh, financial planning magazine and, and they asked me to sum it up in one mm-hmm. word. Um, and so I could start there. Um, and it's really purpose. So um, the Kinder Institute carries on the work that George Kinder has done for the past 40 years, where he started as, you know, a CPA, then became an advisor kind of as a result of doing so many tax returns and wanting to help people. And then um, really his, his line of questioning and the way that he started interacting with clients has informed the way that his curriculum is set up. Um, and so really, I think um, what the Kinder Institute taught me was being intentionally curious about people, being able to hold space for them, really empowers the person to make the decisions that will be most impactful to them and make them as soon as humanly possible to get to, their, get to where they want to go. Um, and, and that's really what we call the evoke process. And it, it's really about just being a great active listener and asking the right questions to get individuals to make the change that they've they've always wanted to make, uh, but never have felt equipped to do so. So you've mentioned hold space a couple times. What uh, what what does hold space mean? I think of it as <laughs> when you're talking to someone, and let's say that person says something that. Um, is a bit uncomfortable. And so you feel the need to interject something right away because you either wanna change the subject or it's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, Holding space means taking in what that person has just said, whether you feel uncomfortable or not. Acknowledging them for saying what they've said and just deeply thinking about it. Enough to not talk and look in someone's eyes while not talking. That's deep. That's really deep. <laughs> uh, but it's powerful. I mean, I can see how it's incredibly powerful, but um, you have to, I would assume you have to push through periods of uh, maybe awkwardness at the beginning, right? Because it's it, it's oh, not yeah. natural. Um, I think there's a parallel between what the best advisors do in just listening and the pregnant pause and being quiet and observing and what you're talking about in terms of a more formal structure, there's a lot of parallels between those two. But I'm assuming, is it a, is it something that comes natural to you now? Or is it something that you have to remind yourself before you sit down with a, with a client, um, 
is it just part of Christina? Is it just part of the, the genius that is Christina now, or is it something that you have to constantly work on? I would love to say that it was part of me. Um, I, I, the, the being curious part has always been a part of me. Though I do believe that becoming a registered life planner equipped me, you know, X times more to be brave in these situations. Um, it comes with a lot of practice. And so the answer is no, it doesn't come natural. And I try to prepare myself before every, what we call life design meeting. Um, and I sit in a five minute silent meditation before each one of those meetings so that I can free my mind of thoughts and uh, be very present for the individual or the couple that we are about to serve. So the, the client base, that's incredible. Um, the client base that you're working with, do they know that you're doing this level of personal preparation before they come in to meet with you? Is, it, is there a, well, so I'll just stop right there. Do, do the clients know that you do this level of personal preparation in advance of meeting with you? I would say that they don't. Uh, they're not probably aware of how much we prepare until the end of the life design meeting where we deliver our, what, what, we, what George Kinder calls the torch. So is this part of your value proposition, like the actual um, five minutes in advance of meeting with Mr. and Ms. Client, I am sitting down for five minutes to meditate, to clear mental distraction so that I can be focused on this client. Do you actually, is that, is that just internal work or is that something that you maybe currently or in the future plan to use as a promotion is the wrong word, but to use, to reinforce the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish? I think that's an interesting point, um, though I would say that right now it's not something that I I care to to point to uh, because I do think it speaks for itself in the way that I and my partner are present for our clients during this life design meeting. Um, you know, to me, it's it's a success when the tears are shed, and there hasn't been a meeting yet where tears haven't been shed. Um, and so right now we're, we're super, super happy about the way these have gone, um, you know, two and a half months in. So it's more about the quality of work. It, the, it, the, the product that you put on in front of the client is high quality and the craftsmanship, you're not pulling the veil. You're just saying you're going to have a quality engagement with quality people um, and not necessarily shining a light on how you get to that point Is that fair yeah okay. um so the type of client that you want to attract so i want to talk about this a little bit more so the 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 so so my so you're in orange county you're in la la orange county I am not in LA. Orange County. I'm <laughs> sorry. 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 <laughs> we're both on the West Coast. So I'm in Seattle. You're in LA. And we're talking about mindfulness and meditation. Um, 
I grew up in small town Nebraska. I've done enough work with financial advisors where you mention meditation and panic buttons and alarms go off immediately. And I think there is um, a direct correlation between we're in an industry that is uh, consistently emphasizing depth in relationships. It's the biggest competitive advantage. And so if you want to be stronger at relationships, you've got to be better at emotional intelligence. If you want to be better at emotional intelligence, there are tools and that one of the biggest tools within that toolkit is mindfulness and meditation. Even going down that track with some very forward thinking financial advisors, that conversation will immediately result in the panic button. So can you just talk about from a strategic perspective, um, as a professional, so as Christina, the CEO of a, of a financial advice, we'll just keep it very top of top of house. So an, an RIA CEO of an RIA, why do you deploy mindfulness principles um, to be better in business? So maybe not necessarily from a personal perspective, we'll blend those two, but just to be better at business, can you talk about mindfulness, meditation, um, those strategies? Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, before deploying anything to the masses or to an organization, you need to do what you preach. So, I mean, I think the biggest litmus test is its effect on me and what happened to me when I started practicing mindfulness. Um, you know, someone handed me the book 10, 10% Happier. And that was really like the first book that I read that uh, kind of got my brain thinking about, well, it doesn't, not, it doesn't need to just be, you know, spiritual people that meditate, right? I mean, there's, there's use of it when it comes to stress reduction. There's use to it when it comes to um, having better relationships, period. Um, there's a lot of use uh, for mindfulness and meditation. And so, you know, for me, I, I like talking a lot about whatever it is and its impact on me as a, um, essentially as, as the way that I talk about why others should do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, are you, so what's a good follow-up question? Um, are you, um, I mean, so that, 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 that blended between personal and professional. So can you, can just, can you expand more on, uh, well, here's a better question. So Kinder Institute, were you, were you, did you learn about these practices in the Kinder Institute? Were you, uh, did you have a mindfulness practice personally before going into the Kinder Institute? Can you just talk about your journey in adopting just mindfulness practices um, in general? Yeah, I mean, I think um, my mindfulness practice really began in my early 20s when I was going through a, you know, what we millennials call our quarter life crisis and <laughs> feeling like there's no hope 
in the world and it's full of despair. And um, I, I found uh, Zen Buddhists, uh, Zen Buddhists, wow, Zen Buddhists. And there's um, a whole slew of them, but John Kabat-Zinn was a big one. Um, and I started, um, you know, moving to LA, I, I started reading a lot more about them. Um, and I, and I, you know, picked it up, put it down, picked it up, put it down. Um, and I'd say probably it was when I turned 30 that I went to the Kinder Institute's, uh, the five day program, which is the uh, launching point of becoming a registered life planner. And, you know, no, no surprise, but that was a five day program in Hana Maui, another Hawaiian tie there. Um, and it was a, a program that was created and curated by George Kinder. And every day um, in the beginning and at the end, uh, began and end, began and ended with meditation. Mm. And so George Kinder has been a lifelong uh, practitioner of uh, uh, Zen Buddhism. And um, he even does, you know, kind of five day long um, silent meditation retreats. Um, and so it certainly kind of picked back up when I went to the Kinder Institute's uh, program. And that kind of launched into me exploring all of my resources in LA. I started meditating in the morning with a Zen Buddhist monk um, a few blocks away from, from me. And uh, it helped me through a lot of kind of my life's challenges, which is why I'm such a, you know, a, a fan of it today. Um, and it's now just one of those things that if I know that I'm on the precipice of having an anxiety attack or, uh, you know, or, or I'm about to uh, try to catch the biggest wave of my life, you know, it's like m mindfulness is kind of a tool for me to access anytime um, I want, where I just let go of all my thought and, and just focus on my breath. So what does that practice look like for you on a day to day basis? I'd like to say it, it, it's more than 30 minutes, but uh, it's a morning where uh, a morning meditation where I spend between 10 and 20 minutes um, sitting in silence. Um, I use a, uh, a mindfulness app that just uh, does kind of the Zen um, timber bells um, to begin and end the practice. Uh, it's pretty simple. Um, and I typically do it with my fiance, who is also a fan of, of, of the practice. What's the app that you use? Um, let me one second. The insight timer. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then in addition with every client that comes in, you carve out five minutes just to be present. If it's not five minutes, I try to do five minutes for the, uh, for what we call our life design oh, meeting. Okay. Yeah. But if not, it's just, you know, a minute or two of, of deep breathing. Yeah. Uh, love it. So you mentioned Dan Harris. I, I'm a fan of Dan Harris. Um, I think one, one thing that he did for me was he just broke down a lot of the barriers. Like he's just a normal person, kind of like an everyday person. Um, and uh, he opened... Like, I think he casts away a lot of the dogma associated or potential dogma mm -hmm. associated with meditation and mindfulness. Um, and his book is is really good. The 10% Happier, that's really good. 
um, registered life planner. So when you went through that five-day experience, when you looked around the room, who did you see? Who's going through this five-day experience? I'd say the vast majority are RIAs. Okay. So registered investment advisors that have heard about George and the Kinder Institute, typically through either AICPA or NAPFA. Um, it was interesting because at the time that I joined, I was a mutual fund wholesaler for an investment firm. And I was the only one, obviously, um, doing that at the time in that group. Uh, there was one wirehouse advisor, a dear friend of mine, and then the rest were RIAs. Okay. Um, so the so I want to dig into this a little bit more. So you've met with thousands of advisors, right? You've met with all I shapes have. and sizes, all different channels, um, starting advisors, advisors who have been in the industry for a million years. Uh, can you can you talk about what what you see or what you saw, what you've learned? as being a registered life planner, going through the Kinder Institute, your practices now, um, and the most successful advisors out there. So whether they were engaged fully in some type of life planner or had a mindfulness practice, maybe they didn't, most likely they did not, but can you just connect the dots between what you're practicing currently, what you've learned as a registered life planner, and what you observed uh, in doing you know, thousands of meetings with thousands of different types of advisors. Sure. You might need to remind me of those specific topics as, as, we, go, as we go through that. But what I've learned, um, what I've learned is that the advisors that succeed are the ones that care and are the ones that are fun to be around. Like period. If you, um, you know, are just a number cruncher, I think there's a certain type of client that wants to work with you and solely you. And, and, you know, I totally get that. But kind of, if you look at kind of the advisor population that I worked with, the most successful ones, the quote unquote, you know, the biggest ones were people that were cool, that just, you know, really cared, wanted to talk to their clients, just like they were their friends. And, you know, believe it or not, they were actually, a lot of them were less skillful than, than uh, the more of the unsuccessful numbers guys, to be frank. So they had street smarts. They had people skills. They had street smarts. Yeah. And emotional intelligence. Well, so do you think that emotional intelligence for, for the majority of those advisors was just natural? It was just, they have a, their type A personalities or is it something more formal? I, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's either that or, um, you know, if they weren't, they were partnered with someone who had, um, you know, a greater skill set in that gotcha. department. Gotcha. Okay. What, what did you learn? What were the best practices that you picked up in working with advisors that you are deploying as the CEO of MANA? Sure, I can, I can certainly talk to that. Um, so what did I learn that I'm deploying now as a CEO of MANA? 
having a a very well thought out onboarding process. Uh, number one, um, I've you know started participating in a number of study groups uh, via our XY Planning Network, uh, you know, uh, group of colleagues, and it's very clear to me the ones that are succeeding um, and the advisors that I served in the past. The ones that are the, the all stars are the ones that have a stellar onboarding client experience. And that is something that um, both Stephanie and I are very proud to say that we have today. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, I mean, I think the, the kind of when we went through training of how to how to work with with advisors, you know, one of the things that we talk about is letting the advisor talk more than you. Um, and that's, I think, should be the same thing for you know, an advisor working with a client, you should speak very little in that first meeting. Um, I'd even urge you to not speak too much in the second meeting uh, to really understand the, the deepest dreams and fears of your client. Um, and you can only really get there if you listen. Generational. Um, are there... So I can see how Mana, financial life design, empathetic listening or, or um, active listening with empathy could appeal toward millennials going through their quarter life crisis or maybe a couple years removed from the quarter life crisis. Can you talk about how these strategies work with boomers, you know, the, the, the generation where all the money yeah. is? Can you talk about just right. that? Yeah, I mean, I think no matter what, um, I, I think that old adage of of people liking to talk about themselves holds true, right? And I think there's a lot of like, oh, baby boomers don't want to talk about this or empty nesters don't want to talk about that. Well, in fact, I mean, if, if we are a living and breathing example of that, um, we have proven that this model works across generations. Um, you know, we had the same life design meeting three times last week, one with a couple, um, a, a just retired couple in their early 60s, a couple in their mid 40s, and a couple in their early 30s. All were exactly as impactful, all ended with tears of joy, um, and it was to me a, a, a wonderful example of what we're doing is, is, is on track to be the right thing. And we are truly trying to change the game. Your goal is to make people cry. In the life design meeting, <laughs> it means that you've, you, you've touched something. And so. the life design meeting takes how long? What's, what's the typical life design meeting look like? So it's typically for a couple, it's an hour and a half and it's taking you through George Kinder's questions and really the entire evoke process that we learned at, in our RLP training. And so my, my kind of layman's understanding of this based on a couple uh, very sophisticated Google searches was that you start broad and maybe one YouTube video, uh, you start broad, right? And you ask them, questions about just life like if 
if you had few barriers if money, if money were, no, were object. no object what would you do and mm -hmm. then from there you bring it down maybe rather than me try to can you just walk through with those it's right. a three-step process yeah, so, I mean, right it, you're right it's essentially three three sets of uh, a set of three questions it starts broadly by essentially removing the limitations of money um, into your life. So what would you do if money were no object? Uh, the second is um, giving you a time limit of five to 10 years, though you don't know when you will be leaving this earth. You have five to 10 years, except this time you do not have unlimited funds. How would you change your life? And then finally, it really just brings back the reflection where you essentially now have 24 hours to live and you reflect upon what you missed, who you didn't get to be, what did you not get to do? And that's where the tears flow. Yeah, and I think it's it's also, it's the process. So, I mean, I think anyone can ask those questions and I think there's a lot of planners and advisors that do it without going through the training. Um, though in the training, you know, you can get those answers out of anyone and, and have these conversations that could last 20 minutes but you need to really be in that conversation with them and take them through their thought process because there's a lot that's left off the page. And so the way that you uncover that is through the, um, uh, largely through silence and just simple probing questions. Just being right. in the moment, being present, being curious, listening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do most of those of life planning meetings take 90 minutes? For a couple, yes. Or do they typically typically go longer? I could I could go on for yeah. hours if if I had all the time in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but but typically it's about you know uh, forty five minutes um, a person. Okay. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Christina. So what what inspires you? What inspires me? I've always said that I'm meant to shake up the world and I want to ignite the world in my own special way. Um, and I, and I believe that I've really found that calling here in financial life design. It's a, it's, it's a uh, divergence from the traditional method of financial planning. And to me, it develops, it creates um, many more results than traditional financial planning. And I know that I'm meant to do this for the rest of my life. Uh, what else inspires you? Um, what else inspires me? A beautiful sunset, nice rolling waves, and anything really with heart. How often do you surf? Oh, much less lately. <laughs> but uh, once or twice a week. Once or twice a week? That's pretty good. What's the uh, what's the craziest situation you've been in while surfing? And let me define crazy. So what is the what is the um, the most rewarding the most rewarding but also the most risky environment that you've been in while surfing? Yeah, that's like every time. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 
So I, I, when you asked me that question, this moment popped up. It was in 2015, and there was a, a big swell that hit the Hawaiian Islands um, in, the, in, in the summertime, which was fairly rare. And I remember it was a Friday. I just wrapped up work, and I looked at the forecast, and it said five to seven feet, which in Hawaii is still ginormous. But I was, you know, at the top of my game at the time, and I was like, let's do this. So um, my uh, best friend and one of my mentors and I hired a guide to come out with us to a spot in um, uh, on Oahu called Flies, and it's near what they call town in Honolulu. And uh, it is a uh, essentially like a big cement wall um, that is the barricade between um, between uh, downtown Honolulu and the ocean. And uh, when we went out there, it was about five to seven feet. And those are pretty big waves, but you know, we were ready to go. So we started paddling out. You had to walk down this really slippery, moss covered cement stair. So that was treacherous in itself. And then you had to paddle out whenever the waves got a bit smaller. So we start paddling out, we start paddling out. It takes us about 20 minutes to realize we haven't gone very far. And our guide said, if you look in the back, you know, at the back of the sets there, waves are getting bigger. Um, they're now closer to nine to 10 feet. Um, but there was no way to turn back because you'd get slammed into the cement wall. So um, I had to keep paddling 40 minutes later, we finally make it out. The sets are now 10 to 12 feet. And my best friend and I are having a pure, like pure panic attack. <laughs> like no idea what's going on. I am too terrified to paddle out or to, uh, to take a wave because that would have been the biggest wave I'd ever surfed. Yeah, what was the biggest um, wave up until that point? I'd probably say five okay. feet. Yeah. yeah. So I was, there was full of bravado there, a little Icarus syndrome. Um, and I could not, I could not bring myself to turn my board and, and paddle into the wave. And so the guide sees me, he knows that I'm capable of doing it. I'm in pretty good shape. I've been paddling for 45 minutes now. And a big, huge wave comes at me. And this guy just pushes me into a wave, which is, so not cool. <laughs> um, and I hold on for dear life and I get up, I pop up because I have to, because there's no other option unless I bail and then I'll get stuck underwater for a very long time. And I take the wave and it's the biggest wave I've ever surfed. And my best friend there watching me take the biggest wave and she's screaming at the top of her lungs. And uh, yeah. I finally, I mean, I take the lo one of the longest rides of my life as well. And then I paddle for dear life back to that cement wall and I get hit a couple times, but I'm fine. So that it, it essentially epitomizes everything I, I hate and love about surfing. <laughs> love it. I mean, you're just glowing right now. You can hear how, like, how do you feel? Just telling that story. Whew. My heart's still racing, beating. So. <laughs> yeah. You need to meditate. I remember that moment very, very, very clearly. So. How do you draw? Do you draw on that moment frequently? 
I draw on that moment uh, when I'm facing some relatively smaller waves. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I draw on it when I'm surfing uh, because the fear of large waves is constant with me. And I think a lot of people, but um, especially with me. And every time I paddle out to waves that I'm uncomfortable in, I just, I go back to that moment and said, if I could do that, then I can do these waves for sure. Take some deep breaths. You don't need to take the first wave that comes at you. Be patient. Do you draw on it outside of surfing? I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels like it's a metaphor for the entrepreneurial journey that you're on right now, right? I mean, at some point, maybe you pushed your own board out into the surf, but it feels like there's a lot of parallels between what's happening right now. Now that you mention it, yeah. Now that you mention it, I I, I see those parallels. I think that's a really astute observation. <laughs> Never thought about it before, but yes, you're right. I do feel like I'm careening down an amazing path right now. I have no idea where it's going to end. And I'm having the time of my life. Love it. Uh, your partner, Stephanie. Can you talk about Stephanie? How you yeah. know Stephanie? Where you found Stephanie? Why the two of you work well together? Yeah. Um, I love talking about Stephanie more than I love talking about myself. Um, but Stephanie is my best friend from college. And we... Um, got really close. She was two years younger than me in, in school. And um, I, I often joke, um, she tries to not, she tries to downplay this, but she taught me accounting. <laughs> um, I was an international relations and you know pol political science major. And clearly I love talking and connecting with people, but you know, the balance sheet wasn't my, my forte. Fortunately, Stephanie is, um, the greatest math mind that I know. Um, and she can create a process and create an Excel spreadsheet for anything. Um, and, um, you know, we, we stayed very close um, in the years since Bucknell, where we went to school um, and always kind of thinking about like, man, wouldn't it be cool if we found some way to work together? Wouldn't it be cool if, you know, our, our past uh, converged and we were able to have a shared purpose? And it was really kismet that led her. Um, she started as an auditor of hedge funds at PwC. Then she went to work for the largest hedge funds of funds, uh, publicly traded hedge fund of funds in the world at Man Group um, and as, the chief, uh, as one of the chief risk officers for a portfolio. Um, and then she transitioned to the private client side a couple of years back. And so um, it was then that we started talking about some of the, the observations we had about the industry, about portfolio management, about financial planning. And uh, she moved to Los Angeles about a year and a half ago. And then conversation started more formally to, to start what MANA is today. Very cool. Um, so how did it go from we're best friends we share a similar uh, vision on what needs to be the gaps that need to be filled. So how does it go from, you know, an idea to a partnership? Because I think there are a lot of ideas out there. There are a lot of people that 
you know, grab a drink, grab coffee, grab lunch, and they have these shared values. But going from a conversation to an actual partnership, we're now we're locking arms and we're going to launch this thing together. That's a huge leap. I think it's one of the biggest challenges in our industry. Like going from one to nine is easy. Nine to 10 is incredibly difficult. And if it, nine to 10 isn't done sure. the right way, what happens is things fall apart pretty quickly. So I think that you and Stephanie had the benefit of being friends and knowing each other for a long time and having this deep um, relationship. Um, but can you just talk about that, like the that la- the nine to 10, that last stage? Yeah. I, I, um, I would be remiss if I did not mention the power of mentors. Um, we, we have a, you know, someone that we consider to, to be our, uh, a close mentor of both of ours. Um, she also happens to be one of my neighbors and she also happens to be the woman that I went on a, my sabbatical with. Um, she's a professor at Pepperdine university. And so you know, she is a former consultant who really helped us understand how to get from, you know, nine to 10. Um, really what happened was um, Stephanie was at the point where she was going to, um, you know, move on from her current job and go to another job. Um, and I was at the point where I was going to quit my job. So I think one of the kind of deciding factors is like having someone willing to put it out on the line, right? And so I was gonna start this, you know, this financial life design firm alone or with someone. And it kind of that, you know, that kind of propelled Stephanie to say, hey, let's talk about how this can work. And um, our mentor said, the first thing you have to do is put the numbers together and see if it actually works. So we spent, um, you know, a, a month and a half creating our proposed business plan. And we created a, a whole slew of different spreadsheets um, and tables and figuring out how much time, how much money, how much work it would take to build what we wanted to build. And so um, once we had those numbers, we went out and spoke to our mentors and presented it to them to make sure that they understood it and they bought in. Um, and that's really when we knew, when we saw the excitement behind their eyes, that we were on to something. And from there, you know, I, I think we both decided like, hey, let's let's give this a shot. We can do this. We have some runway. Let's do it. And uh, that's when we decided to to start Mana Financial Life Design together. Great. Um, two women. Millennials in an industry full of boomer males. Can you talk? I didn't notice that. You know, it's a stat <laughs> that I saw the other day. Um, can you just talk about that? Like what? I, I, so I don't want to anchor you on anything. Can you just talk about two millennial females in a boomer male industry? Sure. Um, some summed up in one word is empowered. We know that we're different. We know that our story is different. We know that our approach is different. We are empowered by our clients 
who continue to come through the door are prospects that then become clients, I'd say. Um, we are, we continue to be empowered because, you know, the traditional thought of two women advisors, two millennial women advisors would bring in millennial female clients. Yeah, that's come too, but we've attracted retirees, men and women. We've retired, uh, we've, we've attracted, you know, future retirees that are going through a huge life transition of all their kids leaving the house and becoming empty nesters, right? And we've, we've attracted, um, you know, high income earning, you know, double income earning couples in Los Angeles who, you know, previously thought that that, that was kind of like the space for the big wirehouses only. So we're pretty empowered and feeling very excited. Love it. You're riding that wave. Um, okay. Two, two last questions. You get on time. Okay. Sure. We're on a roll. We're rolling. Uh, what surprised you the most? <laughs> what surprised me the most? What surprised me the most was the outpouring of support that each of us, both Stephanie and I, would receive from our former colleagues and our family and friends. And the energy that is so tangible uh, when you start an entrepreneurial venture. That surprised me the most. It moved me the most. Moved me to tears, in fact, Sam. So does it, it how do you... How do you um, how do you capture that momentum and that energy in a way that pushes you forward? Like it's probably not the best way of asking the question. A better question would be after whatever the mark is when entrepreneurship ends and you're not an entrepreneur anymore whatever that mark mm -hmm. is, if it's a 10 year thing, if it's an assets thing, if it's a revenue thing, whatever, at some point you'll no longer be an entrepreneur. How do you, how do you, um, I'm not asking, struggling a little bit with this question. Like how do you keep that energy going? Well, that's not a very good question, though. Not really keep the energy going. But if, if, it, so you're a master at asking questions that, that get to the heart of what matters most to people. And you experienced what you're trying to help them experience through an outpouring of love and energy and, you know, uh, um, positive positivity. So at some point you're no longer an entrepreneur, How, it, it, but you're still on that quest to draw that, uh, draw that. Let's scrap this one. Where I'm going with this is how do you continue So you have a client that's coming in this afternoon 
and you're going to take them through the financial life design process. Mm-hmm. And your goal is to ask such piercing questions that drive to the heart of what matters most to them that ultimately they're moved to tears. You've gone through a parallel experience. Questions weren't asked. It was actually a proactive outpouring of positive energy. Mm-hmm. How do you bottle that in a way that can continue to drive you after the entrepreneurship definition goes away? I think that's a great question, Sam. I think I'd answer it. This is something I've been thinking a lot about over the past few weeks because, so, I mean, I I feel it, right? It's like two and a half months in and now it's becoming, this is what I do every day. Um, And I think the answer is communication. So what I mean by that is that a great partnership can't exist without communication. So, you know, Stephanie and I were super energized at that first outpouring when referrals come in, when um, we're able to pick each other up, right? How that happens is effective communication. At the end of every week, we carve out time to celebrate the wins, right? And it's a, it's a weekly check-in to say, hey, I really loved when you did this. I really love when you did that. This was a sign of what's to come, right? And it's just, so taking the moment to celebrate. And to me, that's part of becoming an effective communicator. Um, I think becoming effective in communicating outwardly to the public and to prospects is also how we keep that bottled, um, is to keep sharing our message um, in, better and better ways will continue to keep that energy flowing. So how do you and Stephanie continue that communication once you, if you fast forward five years from now, Mana is exploding with success. Um, How do you keep those lines of communication open in a way that's once an entrepreneurial spirit dies? goes away. Sure. Uh, The answer is I don't know yet, but I do have this hunch that it goes back to keeping some of those rituals that we've had um, from from day one. And so that, you know, it's one, again, it's it's giving partners feedback that's not the nicest is the toughest thing about being an entrepreneur or being in business at all. Um, and so you really need to make space for that every single week or else resentment builds. Um, and so to me, that's what I think about, you know, five, five years going forward, 10 years, just always respecting the uh, sanctity of our relationship by continuing to hold space for each other, give each other feedback um, and celebrate the things that deserve celebration. So what are the actual mechanics of how often do you meet and carve out time? Do you have it? Is it on an as needed basis or as available basis? No, it's at end of every Friday okay. before. And because we're friends, it's important to close the week of work 
and start into the weekend, right? And so it's one of those things where, you know, it's like, okay, we're both exhausted. It's 4 p.m. on a Friday and it's like, I can't work anymore. Okay, why don't we do our kind of check-in and end on a, we always want to end on the on the high note, right? On a happy note. So, um, you know, I we, we essentially start with celebrations. Then we give each other feedback. And then we close with a one word closer um, in anticipation of the week to um, the week that follows. Tell me more about that. Why one word and what's the word? So it's just like, so what does it resemble? It, it is whatever, whatever you want that word to be. So we close with one word that is, that represents our feeling for the next week. Mm, okay. So if you had 200 meetings uh, the following week, your word might be uh, overwhelmed or right right <laughs> yes so and and so if you think about that if that's the word then the other partner knows how to serve huh. the yeah. other partner better gotcha so it was wins feedback one word that's Love right it. uh taking the leap so i want you to talk through so let's go back to this one through 10, one through nine thing, less about forming a partnership, more about Christina and your journey. And at some point you had made the decision that I'm going to put myself in the driver's seat and I'm going to take control of where I want my life to go. And I, maybe it was over the matter, a matter of moments. Maybe it was over the matter, over a matter of months. Um, can you just talk through that experience and mm -hmm. yeah i've I've always been a planner um, and um, it wasn't a matter of of months it it happened at George Kinder's home in Hana Maui when I had just turned thirty years old, and um, as a part of the life planning process we had to be life planned. And it was then that the realization happened that I was very unhappy doing what I was doing, feeling no fulfillment out of selling mutual funds to advisors and really needing to do something that meant something to me with also the realization of my finances being that I was the quintessential wholesaler and spending almost all that I made and not saving very much, um, it, it became a, a matter of, you know, huge importance to me to get it all figured out before I launched. So financially, I had to stop spending and start saving. Um, and so I set very, very aggressive savings goals for myself. Um, I also had to uh, get my CFP, which I believe to be the gold standard of financial planning. And that was a two-year process to go to school while working and then passing the CFP designation, which took another three months. And so that was part of the, the plan. Um, the other part was also not only getting the CFP, but getting the registered life planning designation because that became, um, you know, part and parcel with what I had to do before I would feel ready to take the leap. So, um, you know, there's... So part of me also hates when 
you know, I, I talk about like people's tendency to get ready to get ready. But I think that part there, there needs to be some getting ready. Um, but you have to set a date for yourself and you have to know exactly what that date is. And you have to map out that moment, um, you know, that comes along with it from how you're going to feel to how you're going to celebrate when that moment passes. Right. And so I knew that, you know, March of 2018, I was going to pass my CFP. I knew that I was going to throw a huge party, you know, with all my friends and drink a lot of tequila that night. And I did. Um, I knew that I was going to take a sabbatical, a two month sabbatical to go uh, explore the world and surf in San Sebastian, Spain uh, before I quit my job. And I did that. And then ultimately, I knew that I was going to quit my job July of 2018 to launch Mana. Uh, and so every single thing that I did for those essentially five years was planned um, with that moment in mind. The choices that I made, the things that I decided not to do, all had to do with that choice. So five years from sitting down in George Kinder's living room, having this spark of inspiration to your first day in launching Mana. Was it a, about five years? Actually, it's, it's not five years. It's three years. Sorry. Okay. Well, three years works too. So three but, well, but yeah. I'm, but, <laughs> yeah. but I think there's this romanticism of, of entrepreneurship and following your purpose in life and being true to yourself and, you know, um, whatever, however you want to romanticize this, this, this idea, um, or however people romanticize this idea over that three year time frame, there had to be moments despite all of the planning, right? You could, it sounds like mm -hmm. you did it. You were very diligent. You understood the financial impact. You said you talked about, or you, you referenced the emotional impact that it's going to have. Um, you had mm -hmm. specific timelines associated with what you needed to, do, needed to do by when. You knew when you needed to celebrate. You knew when you needed to hunker down and study. I'm assuming, despite all of that, over that three-year time frame, there were holy shit moments where you're like, am I doing, is this the right path? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, undoubtedly. So many like breakdowns. I'm never going to get there. Um, you know, I think there, that happens with everyone. Right. And I think, again, that's why mindfulness helps where you kind of take a step back. You remove that moment's emotions and say, is this really what like I'm meant to be doing? And the answer is yes. Um, there were many times I wanted to quit before. But then again, you know, going back and saying, you know, these are the things that I need to do before I can quit to launch as successfully as possible. So. so from the inspiration to the plan, how long did the plan take you? To create the plan? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got a very diligent process. Just, I mean, was it a, you sat down for a weekend and you knocked all this out or was this an evolving um, yeah, I mean, I think I I journey. I sat down and I and I actually formulated the action steps um, over a weekend. Um, it was essentially like right after I came back from Han, I was like, there was you know five days until Christmas, and I said, what do I need to do? Um, 
And as interestingly enough, like as I'm taking my CFP curriculum at UCLA extension, I was able to kind of implement all of the things that I was learning and all the things I need, I knew I needed to do in a financial planning uh, way. So that, that helped a lot. Um, I did not, um, I had my goals set, but I didn't know, you know, how much every month I needed to save. Um, and that's kind of what I've created in our new financial life design processes, actual like concrete numbers of like, this is exactly what you need to save. This is how you should um, kind of pare back. Here are some suggestions and here's the path forward. Have you had any clients go through this experience that have had a similar epiphany to you that have completely taken a different course, path? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think what's happening is uh, we're finding that it's not going to be an immediate, I can quit my job. The fact of the matter is 71% of Americans spend more than they make. Um, and that's held true with people that we've met, right? We know that the people that can budget more, that have worked around budgets, tend to have more saved. So that's great. But even so, they still haven't saved enough. And so they still need to work a certain amount of years. And so it's really important as financial life designers to keep that light burning bright for them in that year and a half or in those two years that they need in order to be able to launch their entrepreneurial dream. Is some of that process, though, stripping out the on the expense side, just stripping out the unnecessary expenses that provide some type of false sense of value? Or is it more about kind of finding your passion, building your 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 passion egg, your nest egg of to explore or to follow that dream and then going, or is it, does that make sense? That question? Like, yeah, it's both. Yeah. Um, so, so it, it, you have to take a look at what the status quo is, right? It's like how over the past few months or over the past few years, here's what the run rate's been. Um, and then you have to hold them accountable and start monitoring what they're spending versus what they're saving. Um, and then is that enough? You start showing them how to save that in different buckets um, that are dedicated to specific life goals. And then ultimately you check in every month or every quarter uh, to make sure that they're continuing to live what they've promised themselves they're going to live. I'm assuming that, that a lot of clients, after going through that three-step process, the kinder process, um, have a, have a changed their perspective on things, on material things. That's right. Suddenly those material things have less utility in life. That's exactly right. Uh, how can the industry get better? This is my, my well, I've got, I said two questions. This is the final real question. Um, just how do you okay. think? I was like, cause I probably, I have to, I have to jump pretty okay. soon here. The last, actually the last, last uh, question is going to be, where can we find you? So, um, how can the industry, how can the wealth management industry get better? Include more voices. We know the stats. 
And a lot of us are trying to change those statistics, those demographic statistics. Um, but for the more established registered investment advisors and established brokerage houses, I believe that change will come if there's a more inclusive view on who you're hiring and training. Will that be driven by demand or will that be driven by supply? Because it sounds like what you're saying is it's a supply thing. We need to be more intentional as an industry. Will that demand overwhelm that need for intention at some point when you have offerings like what Mana is taking to market? I'm assuming there's others that have a similar type of more inclusive. I think the demand's already there. Uh, I think there's a lot of short-sightedness on the part of the larger institutions as to how to make a wealth management model work. So I would, I think it's both a supply and demand issue. Okay. Where can we find you? So online, we have a website, www.manafld.com. We're also on Instagram at ManaFLD. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Christina. I appreciate your time. It was great to connect with you and keep up the 